Good morning. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're certainly pleased that you could be with us this morning and hope that our assembly is beneficial and edifying, that you're encouraged by being here. And I hope the things that I present to you this morning will be in the same vein. This morning, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts and miracles. And as we discuss this, as we've worked through 1 Corinthians, we're up to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, and we've kind of stepped out of the chronological order. And we've talked about some of the different things going on in these passages, and I'm kind of lumping all of these in together that Paul talks about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. If you'll recall, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he begins talking about spiritual gifts and identifying them, and then he turns and talks about the body and the body working together. And he concludes that by saying, I'll show you a better way. In the beginning of chapter 13, he talks about love and the importance of love and the desire that we should have in love and serving one another and all the things that love is and the things that love is not. And he concludes that by talking about the duration of miracles. In chapter 14, he begins by saying, so pursue love. And then he talks specifically about the purpose of some of the miracles. He talks specifically about tongues. And then in chapter 14, he concludes about the organization of the worship assembly. And so this morning, what I want us to talk about and what I want us to look at is I want to look at these three chapters and look at the subject of spiritual gifts, but I kind of thought I needed to broaden that a little bit and that I needed to talk about the subject of miracles also. And I think that we can do that and look at both of those in the context of these chapters that we're looking at as well as the subject of miracles. I don't know if you've had any experience in common or modern Christianity in which you've seen the people proclaim the ability to have certain spiritual gifts or miracles. And I think of the one that I constantly think of is uh, during COVID, there was a televangelist that got up there and did a broadcast in which he was going to blow the wind of God and he was going to blow COVID away. And he was literally on TV going, (sighs) and I was watching this going, are you kidding me? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. If I'm on the other side of the aisle of Christianity and I don't believe in God and I don't believe Jesus and I'm watching that, that's crazy. There's some level of absurdity that you're not going to have success. And guess what? COVID didn't go away. You obviously didn't blow COVID away. And I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall in the back room there before they went and did that big production as they gathered around together and they said, well, how are we going to get rid of COVID? And someone said, why don't we blow it away? And everybody's like, yeah, that's a good idea. It just comes off as a little bit absurd. But the truth is, there are a lot of people in Western Christianity that maybe don't go to that extreme, but really believe that there are these spiritual gifts and things that are still in place today. And I believe the Bible talks about these things, that they had a very specific purpose. And that they had a very specific duration as well. And I want us to see that today. So as we go through and we look at miracles, Paul really does do a wonderful job, although he gets out of order, in my opinion, as he defines miracles. Don't want to question Paul, but he defines miracles And then in chapter 12 and chapter 14, he talks a lot about their purpose. But in chapter 13, he talks about their duration. And so when we think about miracles and the 
the broader context of miracles, there are a few terms used to define miracles in the Bible. And you see these words, I'm not going to go try to pronounce the Greek words because I'm sure that I'll butcher them. I, I tried to do it and do the things where they say them online and I, was, I forget it. So these are the words that you would see, miracles, sign, wonder, mighty works. And many times throughout the scriptures, you see these things, these words combined together. Whenever you read Acts chapter 22, uh, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonder signs, and that God did through him in your midst as you know. In Hebrews chapter chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, While God, who also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So, these are the words that you see, but the definition of a a miracle or a spiritual gift is the occurrence, something happening outside the laws of nature. That's a definition of what a miracle or spiritual gift is. It was an event or an act that was contrary to the usual course of, of nature, raising someone from the dead, speaking a language in which you had never ever even learned. Those were acts that were miraculous. They were spiritual gifts. And so for the purpose of the study, though, Paul defines some of these spiritual gifts and says these are what these are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says there, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Now, as you read through these, these aren't all necessarily spiritual gifts. Paul talks about acts of service. He talks about faith. But it's all in what? The same. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. He uses those two words over and over again for a very specific reason. You see, when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, as we've looked at a number of things, there was a lot of division going on. And a lot of these things that Paul deals with are actual questions that had been written to Paul, and Paul is giving responses to them. And as Paul is dealing with this division, he constantly goes back to this word, the same. You're getting and you have these abilities, but they come from the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. They needed to have it driven in their head that all of these things, all of the gifts that you have, the abilities you have, they're all for what? The common good. The common good of the church. That was what the purpose of what they were. And miracles in the New Testament served uh, multiple functions. There were multiple purposes in the New Testament. First and foremost was the function of confirmation. Whenever you read Matthew chapter 6, Mark chapter 16, verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs, 
when an inspired speaker spoke the Word of God, oftentimes what would follow is a miracle. Many New Testament passages articulate this point, this process that Paul's, or Mark writes down in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. He says, how shall, we neglect, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Even the miracles that Jesus performed were designed to back up His claim to deity. In John chapter 14, Christ talks, is talking to His disciples and He says there, If you know the Father by seeing Me, you see the Father. And Philip says, Well, just show us the Father and we'll follow. And Christ says this, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on My own authority, but the Father who dwells in Me does His works. I believe, believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. So Christ, even to Philip, says, you're struggling with this concept that the Father is in me. And if you don't believe that, if I haven't shown you enough just through the words that I speak, at least look to the miracles that I perform, because they give confirmation of who I am saying that I am. And an excellent demonstration of this is in the book of Acts, provided by Luke when Paul is talking to a Roman proconsul. As Paul is talking to this Roman proconsul, there's a sorcerer that tries to thwart Paul's ability to teach the gospel. Paul strikes the sorcerer blind, and this is what is recorded in Acts chapter 13. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The miracle that Paul performed captured the proconsul's attention, causing him to recognize the divine origin of the words that Paul was teaching. And being captured by that, he then believed on the word that he was teaching. In the New Testament, there, are, there is a close correlation in this process of the performance of miracles and the teaching of God's word. You can see it time and time again in Acts chapter 4. Speak your word with all boldness. The confirmation or the validation by stretching out your hand to heal and that the signs and wonders may be done. What was the response to that? Those who believed were of one heart and one soul. In Acts chapter 8, the things spoken by Philip, Philip preached Christ. What was the validation or the confirmation? Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. What was the response? They believed Philip as he preached the things and were baptized. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. The validation or the confirmation in mighty signs and wonders by the power and the Spirit of God. What was the response? To make the Gentiles obedient. This is a process that you see continually over and over again throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. So that's purpose number one. God allowed them to have these ability to work miracles, signs, and wonders so that they could confirm the message and so that people would know that it came from a divine origin and in doing so, push them to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Purpose number one. Purpose number two. When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, Ephesians chapter 4 pretty much lines up with this, these three chapters perfectly. You can see the parallels as you go through these four chapters, essentially, as Paul wrote both of these letters. But what I want us to focus on is the last piece in that green box. This was the second purpose in the spiritual gifts. Edification of the church, edifying the body of Christ. Building up the church. That was the purpose. That's the second purpose. This is the reason that Paul wrote concerning the subjects of gifts. They were not being used to the edification of the church. They were not being used for the purpose of building up the church. What they were being used for is people were jealous of a, this person had this gift and I want this gift. And it was like a, I'm almost like trading baseball cards or something. I want this gift. You have this gift. And it, they were completely misusing them. And even greater, they were misunderstanding what their purpose was for, which was to build up the church. This was not something that Paul was writing to them in a point of praise. This was a thing that they were abusing. What they lacked in Corinth was what? There was a lot of things they lacked, but there's something that we have today that Corinth did not have. An organized rendering of God's Word. That's something that we have that they don't have. And that's very important as we go forward in this lesson. The gifts allowed them to know God's Word as well as to teach in a very multicultural area, whether it was in Ephesus, whether, whether it was at Corinth, whether it was in Rome. These gifts allowed them to teach multiculturally so that they could communicate with all of these people and spread the gospel and grow the church. With modern Christianity, signs, spiritual gifts have become something altogether different. My one and only personal interaction with signs or miracles or spiritual gifts was when I was in high school. At Boys Ranch, every start of the school year, they gave you a little book. And that book was called SMP, Scripture Memorization Program. And every Saturday, you would walk to the chapel and you would look at your verses that you had to memorize for that week. You're supposed to be memorizing them throughout the week, but I figured out it was about a mile and a half walk to the chapel. I could usually memorize them on the way there. It was very important for me to memorize those verses, though. Not because I wanted a greater knowledge of God's Word. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. It was because every summer when you got enough points, you got to go to a church camp. And you wanted to leave Boys Ranch at every opportunity you had. And when you got to go to a church camp, guess what that meant? That meant there would be girls there. And since I grew up with a bunch of dudes, anytime I had the opportunity to act or interact with girls, I was all over it. When you became a sophomore, you could learn, earn extra points and memorize extra verses, and you got to go two weeks. But the second week was really cool because you got to go to this lake in New Mexico. And you got to be at this lake interacting and skiing and doing all these other wonderful things and being with girls. 
And one evening, we're on the beach, and they set up campfires on the beach. And I was in a group. There was maybe 10 of us in this group, and we're sitting around the campfire, and we're talking about different things. I don't even remember what subject we were talking about. And there was only one other guy in my group, and the rest were girls. And I was seated right next to the girl that I was sweet on. Now, this other guy, he wasn't from Boys Ranch, which was a problem. I remember how the subject came up, but the subject of speaking in tongues came up, and he said he could do it. And everybody asked them, asked him to show us him speaking in tongues. And he did this. He put his hands to his head, closed his eyes, bowed his head, raised his head, and then spewed out, I don't know what. Made some very weird noises, some very screechy noises. And I was just sitting there going, dude, you are killing my game. <laughs> Next thing you know, I look around and everybody is crying. I'm like, man, Really? So I'm curious, what did you say? I don't know. What was the point? I'm speaking angelic languages. Are there any angels around? I don't know. And the more questions I asked, the more angry everybody in that group got at me. And the girl that I was sweet on didn't want to have anything to do with it. The rest of the camp, she wouldn't talk to me. It was then that I realized when you begin to question some of these things like this, the intense, not necessarily dislike, pushback or pushback that comes with it. This great supposed manifestation of some spiritual gift that has... Someone has no understanding or incapable of teaching it. And I think that's very important that we understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about these spiritual gifts and what their purpose really was. Because commonly today, there's not a lot of people that are doing a lot of these different things. Brad, we got an update on our computer. They're doing a lot of these different, proclaiming to have a lot of these different abilities. I believe it is with a certain level of sincerity. But for us to understand, to be able to teach and have that conversation, we need to understand what Paul is really talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, Paul, if you remember, he concluded chapter 12 by talking about these spiritual gifts. And he says, but I show you a better way. Or the King James Version says, I show you a more excellent way. He then turns in verse 1 of chapter 13 and says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Is Paul really saying he wanted people to speak in the tongues of angels? Is that what Paul was really wanting? Because that kind of then produces more questions that I have. What reason is there for humans to speak 
angelic languages. I mean, really, what reason is there? We can't see the angels. We can't communicate with them. Then what is the purpose of us speaking angelic languages? Do angels have languages like we do where you go to Africa or Middle East and there's different and I'm speaking an angelic language. Does he understand what I'm saying? Is he in the, is he in the Middle Eastern version or, or is he in the English version? Secondly, what really is truly the spiritual benefit of speaking an angelic language? We can't communicate. So we're supposing that Paul is wanting people to speak angelic languages in which there is absolutely no spiritual benefit. And I tend to lean to the fact that Paul wasn't writing to people for them to not have any spiritual benefit of what he was saying. I think Paul was writing and everything that Paul wrote was for the intention of your spiritual benefit. So what is the purpose in something that has no spiritual benefit? Who do people speak to when using tongues? You know, commonly, you might hear of a place or people worship and they get up and they raise their hands and they proclaim something in a tongue. Or you may see something like that on television. They're amongst other believers. That's not what they were intended for. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 22 says this, Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. This goes to Paul's point throughout 1 Corinthians that they were using tongues, they were not using tongues to spread the gospel. They were not using tongues to convert the unbeliever. They were being used in a way that defeated the purpose of of the church. The tongue was for the unbeliever. What was a tongue? Well, what Paul was setting up with this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has nothing to do with tongues first and foremost. He's concluded this previous chapter with, I'm going to show you a more excellent way, and then he's talking about love. It is the ultimate way. What Paul is saying here is if a person could speak every language, and even the language of angels, that's hyperbole. That's what Paul is doing there. He's going over, above and beyond. He's, being, he's giving you hyperbole. Hyperbole. If you could speak every language and the language of angels, but if you don't do it without love, then what's the use? There is no use. If you don't have love, the ability is rendered useless. You're a sounding gong, a clanging cymbal. He's not contrasting human and non-human language. He's encompassing all of it using hyperbole. He's talking about quantity versus quality. All languages and speaking all languages versus the lack of love. That's what Paul is driving at with this. He's not saying, I want you to speak angelic languages. And I could see when someone 
The reader looks at this and you look at one verse and you pick that and lift it out of its context where someone might possibly think that. Or whenever you go over to the very next chapter and you read the King James Version, it says, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. And people look at that word unknown. And we say, well, that must be 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. That must be angelic languages. Well, that word unknown is in brackets in the King James Version. Most times whenever you read those in your Bible, what you see is it's italicized. What that means is that wasn't in the original manuscript. The translator puts that word in there, or put that word in there, to help aid the English reader. That's why it's there. But when you look at the ESV version of that, for one who speaks in a tongue... Speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. It's not about whether or not this is angelic language. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is going to begin to get them to understand exactly what this is and what the reader should understand exactly what it is. Paul paralleled tongue speaking to a trumpet in war. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will you get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So Paul draws them into something that they would understand, and he takes them to a military battle. And he says, if the bugler blows a sound that is un- unintelligible, it's just going to cause confusion. In battle, they had so many different things that had different processes in which one group went or another group went. And there was very distinct sounds that says this group goes forward or this group goes backwards, whatever the plan was. If that sound is not clear and distinct, what's going to happen? Mass confusion. And Paul says here that the person that does this and speaks in a tongue that is unintelligible... If nobody knows what's being said, you might as well just be speaking into the air. Because that's exactly what is happening. If you go down to verse 21 in the same chapter, Paul says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will, listen, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, excuse me, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Paul uses a very powerful illustration here. And he quotes a passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 28, where God is talking to Israel, and He's telling them the fact that their failure to listen to Him, their failure to listen to Him through the spoken word of His prophets, was going to cause problems. And that meant that they would soon be communicating, that God would be soon communicating with them through the tongue of their Assyrian captors. Why is that important? This powerful illustration presupposes the fact that in both Isaiah 
and 1 Corinthians, human languages are what is under consideration. Not incoherent gibberish. Human language is what's under consideration. Paul drew the conclusion that tongue speaking was intended by God to be directed towards the unbeliever. Why? The unbeliever would recognize the divine origin of what the speaker was saying and be willing to consider the gospel. What Paul envisioned was two people that couldn't speak the same language. If you had someone speaking German and you had someone speaking Spanish, and they came across, and the person speaking Spanish is the one that has the gospel of Jesus Christ, he cannot communicate with the person speaking German. He would have been given a gift, the ability to speak the gospel of Christ in the German tongue. That was the purpose of tongues. That was their objective and their goal, was to spread the gospel so that more people would understand. Not to have an elevated, heightened sense of spirituality. Not to have an opportunity to scream things out and yell things out. It had a very specific purpose. And Paul's admonition to the church at Corinth, he insisted that the person who possessed the ability to speak in tongues was not spiritually superior. He says in verse 12, So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That is the admonition. Strive to build up the church. Not bring attention to yourself. Not say that you can do something that you really can't do. It's to build up the church. He goes on in verse 19 to say this about tongues. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I would rather speak five words in my mind rather than 10,000 words that nobody else understands. Why? Because his objective was the gospel. His secondary objective was building up the church and growing the church. So it's not about languages of angels or tongues of angels. That's not what the, that's all about. It's about human language and having this ability for them to spread the gospel so that more souls may be saved. Another misconception in our world today is that of having enough faith and whether or not we have enough faith when something happens. The Bible teaches that relieving suffering was never the intention or the purpose of miracles. If God's intention, intention was to exempt Christians from pain, suffering, and affliction through the miracle of healing or whatever, then really He has failed. If that was the true intention. For 2,000 years, Christians have suffered the same pains and afflictions as unbelievers. The very same ones. Miracles did not have as their central purpose to demonstrate God's ability to ease pain or ease suffering. That wasn't their purpose. 
And the usual rebuttal to something like that is, well, you just don't have enough faith. And the reality is, is there were plenty of people in the Bible throughout the Scriptures that didn't have faith, that had miraculous things happen to them. Think about this. Any individual that was raised from the dead didn't have enough faith. Them, by natural logic, them being dead didn't have the ability to have faith. The man who was blind from birth that Christ healed in John chapter 9 didn't even know who Christ was. This is the man speaking. He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. And if you read this passage, there is this back and forth between this man and his, his family and the Pharisees, and they're asking him all these questions, and the man's like, man, if he isn't from God, he wouldn't have these abilities. But he didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't even have the ability to have faith in who Jesus was when he was healed. As a matter of fact, it's not till the end of all of this that Jesus comes and reveals to him who he is, so he then can have faith. The opposite of that is also true. There were individuals who possessed faith and lots of faith, and yet were not healed of their ailments. Paul himself was one of those. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Did, are we saying Paul didn't have enough faith? Paul communicated with God. Paul did a lot of wonderful, miraculous things for God. Paul did a lot of wonderful things for the purpose of the church and the growth of the church put himself in positions of suffering and anguish. Did Paul not have enough faith so God said no? It's not the reason. Paul wanted, God wanted his strength to be shown in Paul's weakness. John actually settles this question for us in John chapter 20 and verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. If a person has to have faith first, here the miracles all preceded faith. Your faith was preceded by a number of miracles written in the New Testament before you ever had faith. But it was that process of confirmation and believe that led you to where you are. So that was the purpose and understanding of specifically tongues and healing. But we, we have to go further and look at and understand that the Bible teaches that miracles and spiritual gifts are no longer necessary. And I think that's a hard thing to say and a hard pill to swallow for some because we have everything that we need to function in this life to have pro proper spiritual maturity. 
Peter says that in 2 Peter chapter 3, that we have all things that we need. And that spiritual gifts are actually no longer necessary. And I'm going to use, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And recall what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is about. Paul has talked about love and what he's expressing in love. And he's dealing with love being the better way, the superior way than those things of spiritual gifts which they were having a problem with. I believe to undermine that, to well, to say that we need spiritual gifts today is to undermine the sufficiency of God's Word. And here's why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul argued, love is the more excellent attribute than miraculous gifts. After all, miraculous gifts were going to fail, they were going to cease, they were going to vanish away. These miraculous gifts are what you would combine all together in those words, in those two words, in part. That's what Paul says those are. Miraculous gifts were a part of the in part. And those things would cease or they would go away. And the Greek that's translated here is what he's referring to when it says, when that, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, what is the perfect? When you look at the Greek for that word perfect, I know in what we commonly think of, it's not what it is in the same sense. It's completed or finished. When the completed comes or the finished comes, the partial will pass away. And the perfect, that phrase, that word is what you would call a gender neutral. And I could understand and see if you just kind of lifted this verse out and said, well, when the perfect comes, well, the perfect's got to be Christ. But is it really Christ? Is that what he's talking about? This would be the single instance that Christ is referred to in the gender neutral in the entire New Testament. So the volume of references to Christ that we see, this isn't a gender neutral, or excuse me, a gender neutral phrase that is referring to Christ. It's a thing. When something comes that is perfect, the partial will pass away. Look in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, this isn't Paul just run off, one offing and going down a rabbit hole. Paul's using a very powerful illustration. He's talking about the process of growth. And he offered up this useful illustration to make this point. When the church possessed only bits and pieces of God's will, it could not achieve full spiritual maturity. It couldn't. They were in what we would call the emphasis stage. Whenever the totality of God's will was made known, in other words, the New Testament then full maturity could be achieved. 
So to say that we need spiritual gifts today is much like a child still needing a pacifier. It's still in its infancy. If we have to wait for Christ to return, there's no way we can reach full maturity. Is that what Paul is saying? That there's no way the church in 2,000 years had the ability to reach full maturity. Let's break that down even further because what they're saying, whenever if it's about Christ returning, then you've never reached full maturity as an individual. Because what is the church made up of? Those that have been obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're waiting for Christ to return and we're still in our infancy and we have not achieved maturity, we're in a very sad state. Spiritual gifts were the equivalent of pacifiers to get the church through its infancy. When something came that was perfect, then maturity could be realized, which was God's Word. Read verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he says we're, we can see in a mirror, it's dimly, but we can't see everything. Have you ever looked at yourself in a mirror, like in a room where there's a little bit of light, and you look at yourself, and you know, I look at myself sometimes, and I'm like, man, I'm, I could be good looking today. But then the light comes on, and I'm like, nope, no it's not. He's saying we see it dimly now. We don't have the full picture. We can't see all the details. But then, when this perfect comes, we're going to see all the details, and we're going to see face to face. We're going to see all the details of what we need to know. Very similar to what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 25 when he's talking about being hearers of the word and not doers. And he talks about them looking into the perfect law of liberty and the, the one that's a hearer and not a doer looks, walks away and forgets what he looks like. And it's easy to look at a, a passage like this and see a, a word that phrases like face to face and, and think, well, maybe that's Christ. We're looking at him face to face. Well, then the illustration would have been a window and not a mirror. The Word of God reflects who we are in its entirety and can see who we are and what we are, and we can, we can see what we are. At the end of all of this, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I know this chapter in this verse we use in a lot of different ways, but I want us to understand the full context of what Paul is saying here. As he's started in chapter 12 and talked about these spiritual gifts and made his way over to the subject of love and talked about the superior aspects of love, and he's gotten to that point and he comes to the end and he said, hey, all of these things go away, are going away. So what remains now? What abides now? After all of these things are gone, what abides now? Faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. All of these things will pass away. But what is going to remain and what is going to carry the church into the future generations and what's going to carry it into full maturity 
is faith, hope, and love. They were going to go away, and they went away when we had the full revelation of God's will in what we call the New Testament. But having this information, what do you do with that? I'm going to be honest with you, you're going to have plenty of conversations in life where people vastly disagree on these, these verses such as this. And they may worship in a place in which some of these activities take place. What do you do with this information? I believe it comes down to one question and one question only. Would you rather have a handful of being right or a handful of harvest? That's what it comes down to. Being right versus allowing God to give the increase. In my youth, I probably could have learned this a lot sooner, to be quite frank. Armed with information and not the ability to properly communicate the information. I was a little bit rough around the edges. I'm not much smoother, a little bit, but I was quite, quite a bit rough around the edges. And I think it's very important as we have these conversations with people to be honest and guide them through the Scriptures and guide them in God's Word in a way that doesn't show malice or ill will, in a way that Paul talked about in the very same chapter we're dealing with. Love is patient and kind. And I know the world that we live in oftentimes is one that, as politically divided as we are, and religiously divided as we are, contention happens when subjects like this come up. And I believe that we have to hold fast to Paul's admonition of what love truly is. Because if we're having these conversations, we have a love for the church and we have a love for other people's souls. And if we're going to have love for that, we have got to have patience and kindness. And we have to take the time to walk people through Scripture in a way that is not intended to belittle them or hurt them or denigrate them or anything their family has ever done. It has to be delivered in a way that is patient and kind, in a way that will be receptive. In the way that Paul speaks of what love was intended to be. So that the gospel can grow. So the gospel can be spread. That's our objective and that's our purpose. Understanding that these spiritual gifts are no longer in place. These spiritual gifts are, had their time and they had their purpose. And I want you to really appreciate the plan that God put in place. Because that's what this is about. I want you to really appreciate the fact that there was a recognition of the infancy of the church and that for it to grow and get to the next stage in maturity, that God had a plan and He said, here's spiritual gifts, here's these things that you can use, tools that I'm going to give you so that you can grow the church and expand the gospel. This should give us a wonderful appreciation of what the forethought that God had in getting to where we are today. And the forethought that he had 
whenever it comes to your salvation and my salvation. In Ephesians, it talks about the forethought that God had, that it was from the foundations of the earth. And that forethought wasn't just about spiritual gifts, but it was more important to know with a certainty that we have salvation because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of uncertainties in life. And when we have discussions like this and the uncertainty of some of the things that people don't understand, one thing that we can have a certainty of is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're teaching. And that is the objective and that's the purpose. God's plan was for Jesus Christ to die for your sins. For Him to, be, to suffer and be murdered by the very creation in which He created. That was His plan. The objective of that plan was your salvation. That's what all of this is about. The question this morning is, have you recognized that? And more importantly, have you submitted to Him? Do you understand what He wants for you in salvation and eternity in a relationship with you. If you haven't submitted to that, and if you have questions, there are plenty of people here that can talk to you about those things. If you have questions about the subject that we've talked about here this morning, I know sometimes it can be very confusing. We have plenty of people here that can talk to you about those things. But if you have not submitted to Jesus Christ... None of this really matters. The submission to His blood that He poured out for you is what is needed. We can help you in that submission with waters and baptism. We can help you if you have questions about the subjects, the content that we talked about this morning. We can help you if you have struggles in life that have nothing to do with this. If you need prayers or you need to submit to Christ this morning, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.